ba 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 Episode 21 of Right Where You're Sitting Now. This has taken ages for us to actually get around to making this episode. And if it sounds a bit weird on my end, it's because I'm using a new different microphone and all that kind of weirdness. But I'm Ken Eakins and joining me in the hot seat today, <laughs> hot seats I should say, is uh, Raymond Wiley and Austin Gandhi. Hi guys, thanks for coming along. Hey Ken. It's always great to be back. Excellent. How, and how are you today? How was your holiday and your new year and all that? Yeah, it was all good. Uh, lots of drinking and... Uh, not doing stuff for the site <laughs> so uh but that's all over now and we're back blah 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 um but yeah how was yours oh great man uh you know spent time in wonderful suburban atlanta <laughs> sheer debauchery yes all the time every day in the college park no 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 <laughs> not in college park i used to live in college park the home of many rappers but now i live in Whiteville, Canton, Georgia, where, yeah, the home of white flight. Well, I don't live there. We, li- we live in Athens, but that's where my folks live, and we visited there for Christmas. Austin, you went to Miami, right? No, no, I was working, Raymond. I was, uh, I was in the woods, <laughs> sleeping under a tarp, crying myself to sleep. Oh, wait, no, you were in Maui, right? Fiji? Oh, no, actually, my dream. actually, Austin was um, helping kids. Yeah. You know, which is what he does for a job, which I think is awesome. Yeah, so, that's cool. But he was out in the wilderness. He called us uh, Christmas, and then he called us, uh, well, he called me once on Christmas. and I begged you not to hang up on me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was sort of having separation anxiety. I don't think he wanted to go back to, to his friend, North Georgia Sasquatch, who is <laughs> your only friend for the holidays. So. Anyway, before we before we bring this episode to a grinding halt, <laughs> what did you what did you want to talk about today, Ken? Well, before we do talk about that, I've got a few things I need to cover in this intro. Uh, first up, we've got absolutely tons of stuff happening behind the scenes. We can't annoyingly, and it involves you guys as well. Actually, we annoyingly can't talk about it yet, which is really really irritating. Uh, but they've got some good stuff to look forward to, haven't they, Raymond? I would say so, Ken. But we're gonna. Keep it under wraps for a little yeah, while, right? DL, as we say. Yeah. <laughs> under the radar. Mum is the word, as you say, right? Yep. Mum's so. the word, mum's the word. But yeah, so yeah, we've got a lot of stuff coming up. This is all going to be really cool. Um, there's a new site going up, and it should be in about a week's time, I think. We're going to have a brand new site with lots of cool new features and stuff, but we'll talk about that when it actually comes out in the next episode next week. So uh, 
and we're going to go back to our usual schedule now of the show being weekly again all that kind of good stuff so that's coming up but we've actually got an email from a fan um and i'm glad austin's here because he might be able to help me with this one actually but it says uh, i'm a long-term robert anton wilson fan living in glasgow who's discovered your pretty cool site through douglas rushkoff's link on the, the podcast on to the latest podcast which was back episode 20 uh blah 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 he's you know pleased that someone from um the uk is doing a show like this but he also asks uh I'm a bit flabbergasted at the irony of your site's presentation of James Randi as a cool dude when Robert Anton Wilson's Right Where You're Sitting Now, from which I presume he took the title, paints Randi in a highly unflattering light as an arrogant dog- dogmatist and hypocrite. It's one of the more entertaining chapters of the book. Um, so why did we <laughs> um, put Rob, uh, James Randi on our show? Well, I would say it's because well, Wilson also talks about not having a one-world view all the time, so we thought... Yeah, it'd be kind of a good idea to uh, present the other side of the argument, I guess, in many ways. And, you know, would you agree with that, Austin, that, that that's a kind of Wilsonian thing to do? Absolutely. I'd say that anybody who has, a, who has anything to say at all is going to wind up being a dogmatist and a hypocrite at some point. Mm. Yeah, I, I just thought that rather than, you know, sort of ignoring these kind of uh, things that generally tend to clash with the kind of culture we cover... It'd be interesting to kind of present it <laughs> in some way, and uh, uh, I'm fairly sure you know that's the kind of thing Wilson would have done personally. And I mean, he did in his book, so <laughs> I don't know. I mean, that's kind of our reason for putting him on. Plus, he's done some pretty good stuff. I mean, like the work against uh, you know, like kind of false prophets and all this kind of stuff has all been good, you know. And what the medical work he does, I think, is fantastic, you know, against these kind of uh, pseudo scientific uh, charlatans, I suppose, and you know. So I thought, you know, he's done some pretty interesting stuff as well. So, again, <laughs> it's hard for me to not present that that end, I guess. Well, no, I'd, I would agree with you, Ken, that something like that should be presented, even if it does ruffle um, some of our feathers, some of the people in the audience's feathers, because we've got to learn, if we're going to search for the truth, if we're going to uh, explore ideas that aren't part of the mainstream, we need to have thick skin, thick enough skin to where we can look at different people and different ideas and still be perhaps even entertained by those things and it not be you know it doesn't have to be part of your worldview just because you listen to it on this podcast Come no. on. and no. the instant we close our ears to uh dissenting or differing worldviews is the death of discourse and the inability to really have any chance of grasping at some truth that may not lie within our comfortable pastures yeah well put very well put there mr gandy right well um yeah i hope that answered the question <laughs> in a kind of bizarre way there but yeah um yeah thanks for the email if you have more emails send them to me with questions and we'll answer them on the show um i don't generally do that but i thought well yeah may as well start answering the emails on the show it's a bit easier uh right so we've had a few other nice comments uh, the other thing was we asked people to start leaving us reviews on itunes because apparently that boosts our rating and all that stuff and some people have actually started to do it but what i didn't realize was <laughs> until raymond told me about it actually was that you get different reviews for different countries so yeah okay well thanks to everyone that left us a review on the american store and i you know i wasn't ignoring you i just didn't realize it was there in the first place and we've got some on the british store as well so keep leaving the reviews it helps people find us and actually i think it's starting to show we've got quite a few more listeners over the last month and it could be to do with douglas rushkoff being on the show but you know we've started to the numbers are building still which is always good so uh before i kind of waffle myself to death here uh i think we should cut to the weekly weird news with claire hi 
Hi, this is Claire. Welcome to Right Where You're Sitting Now's Weekly Reviews. Be sure to check out the, uh, the text version because you have all the links over there so you can read the full stories. And here's what has gone down this past week. First, carbonate minerals have been found on the red planet by NASA's Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter. Says the project scientist on MRO, Richard Zurich, if you preserve carbonates on the surface, then you know carbon-bearing compounds can survive in some environments on the planet. That means there are some places we can go and look for evidence of past life, if it ever existed. MSN reports that more and more people have been taking their cell phones to the graves with them. Among other electronic devices, the deceased have decided not to leave behind cell phones, blackberries, and iPods. Artificial human bone marrow was created in a test tube at a lab at the University of Michigan recently. The marrow can continuously make red and white blood cells, which could lead to, quote, simpler pharmaceutical drug testing, closer study of immune system defects, and a continuous supply of red blood for transfusions. A woman from Connecticut was recently awarded with $198 when she sued her dentist for giving her, quote, horse teeth, when instead he'd promised her a big, beautiful, white Hollywood celebrity smile. When Reddington Christian Church decided to set up a spotlight representing the Star of Bethlehem as a part of their nativity scene recently, several people actually mistook it as a UFO. Sightings of a purple squirrel have been reported at a school in Hampshire. Unfortunately, it is suspected that the coloring is not natural as the squirrel has been seen making its way in and out of a room with old computer ink cartridges which may have died its fur. I'm guessing Sarah McLaughlin's new TV spots for the ASPCA haven't amounted to much yet because since the U.S. recession, more and more dogs have been reportedly abandoned, and similar reports have stated that the same thing is happening with domesticated horses as their upkeep has become much too expensive for owners to maintain. A great-grandmother at age 99 had to postpone her one-century celebration when she found out that she'd had the date of her birthday wrong throughout her entire life. At Tufts University, researchers are working on bioactive optical sensors made from silk that could warn of biological hazards and save lives. They're being engineered to detect and signal by changing colors if various substances such as E. coli or toxins in a polluted river have been found. A man in Massachusetts ended up burning his house with a blowtorch he was using to melt ice on his back porch. A UPS driver recently entered a Sikh man's name as terrorist to the database. In Peru, a 20-year-old woman named Virgin Murray, or Virgen Maria, gave birth to a baby boy and named him Jesus, Jesus this past December 25th. Originally, the father, named Adolfo, not Joseph, was a carpenter, believe it or not, and was going to name their son after a professional soccer player, but they decided to change their minds when they figured out the date. Once again, be sure to check out the text section of the Weekly Weird News on our website so that you can get all the links to the stories and the best of 2008s and things like that. And have a happy new year from sittingnow.co.uk. So, uh, Scott, I've, uh, I've kind of decided to become a superhero now. A superhero? Yeah, like, you know, like a full, um, like saving people, burning buildings, pretty ladies, stuff, you know, all that stuff, all that good stuff. Really? Well, what's your superhero name? Um... Awesome man. Wow. Uh, don't quit your day job. Hey, this is Scott. And this is Ben, and we're your hosts for Two Geeks and Mike in a Podcast. The show where we discuss all the latest news and rumors in the entertainment industry, all from a geek's perspective. The only perspective that matters. Join us on the web at geekshow.us. Where we become our friends at MySpace at myspace.com slash two geeks. Two geeks, a mic, and a podcast. We're here to save your day.
Right, welcome back. Thanks to Claire for another amazing weekly weird news or week, weird weekly news. I get, oh, I never get it right. It's my bloody thing. It's annoying. Anyway, <laughs> okay. Uh, so, what are we going to be talking about today, Raymond? Oh well, uh, Ken, you said that you wanted to talk a little bit about uh, your sort of year in review and you know some of the best stories of the past year, two thousand eight. And then me and Austin wanted to give your audience uh, an exclusive, mm-hmm. a first run on a story, an original story, not just us watching documentaries and spitting back out what we saw in them. Oh no, a real live story happening here in Georgia um, that we've been working on, and uh, we think your audience will be kind of interested in it. So. Uh, we have agreed to give you the first interview, Ken, uh, about the developing story that we are researching around the Georgia Guidestones. You, our most trusted friend. Well, thanks for that, guys. Um, obviously, I've got you guys to select some stories that we're going to talk about, uh, and then we're going to go into the uh, the exclusive after that. So uh, I guess, um, who to start? Okay, I guess Austin. If you, you've picked us a story, apparently, so... Damn you, Raymond. (laughs) (laughs) No, I absolutely have not. I have no interest in any story that came out this year whatsoever. And I I, I spent the last three hours pouring over things, um, despairing. Um, But um, I I, I actually think that this may be... um, Raymond gave me a little clue as to what I might talk about um, with regards to to the most interesting train of thought that's crossed our our conversations recently. and I suppose it all starts with a news story, which was this uh, this posting from well back in the day. This is this is numerous years ago um, on uh, Witchbox, um, which claimed um, the the very day that we set up a, a networking site for a an alternative student group um, here at the University of Georgia. Um, that very day, we put in this news feed from uh, Witchbox, and it proclaimed that. Um, 98% of all elders from Wicca don't give a damn anymore and have retired, and uh, the remaining few gather together to discuss how to keep um, the, the pagan movement alive. Um, and this has kind of been a, a topic of discourse for us, trying to figure out, you know, well, where is the, the a culture, as it were, um, moving these days? You know, what's, um, what are the new trends? Um, how is this new Bakhtun of... Um, of the occult uh, dynamo kind of going to change in upcoming years and how has it changed in the past few. Um, and something that, that's been on my mind a lot is kind of this um, apparent drying up of a lot of uh, serious interest in people um, discussing and pursuing things um, in um, kind of a mainstream um, kind of way. Because there was a while where you couldn't really flip on a daytime talk TV show without seeing somebody coming out to his family that I'm a witch um, or you'd have, you know, um, exclusive, you know, Wiccan experts showing up seemingly arbitrarily um, to discuss um, ancient uh, religious patterns, you know, on on Discovery Channel or what have you. And now these these mm, right, the military that uh, the chaplain's handbook and all those stories were you know, relatively fresh for a while, but now uh, much of the mainstream eye seems to have turned away from that, um, while more fringe um, forms of of media uh, are kind of preserving the lifeline of the occult movement. And under that, I'm including kind of these alternative spiritual paths. Um, And that's something that I'm actually curious um, 
what your what your thought is, because Raymond and I talk about this a fair amount just sitting around the house here. Um, but obviously we are we are uh, kind of smuggling that little burning ember in a deer skin trying to get to a new camp and see what it's going to uh, if it'll reignite at some point. Um, and you, too, are are kind of presenting at least the material um, that has inspired so much of the occult revival. Mm. Um, what do you think? Um, what are your thoughts on this uh, trend or lack thereof? I guess what we're talking about is the the death of the neo-pagan subculture that came out of the 1990s, the yeah. early 1990s. Um, we don't see people putting on quite the same peacock feathers when they're talking about magic as we did 10 or 15 years ago. This idea of the craft and charmed and Wicca and things like this, not to, not to demean or diss Wiccan practitioners, because I think it's certainly more interesting than a lot of what we have here in the Bible Belt. But um, why are these things waning in popularity as this idea of a more tech-savvy occult as the buzzword as opposed to Wicca or witch as the buzzword? What's, what's making that change happen? Why has that happened? I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's bizarre, and I have noticed it. I mean, just from looking at the, like this show, for example, and uh, the, the, you know, the most popular episodes we download, if we have the word occult anywhere in the title, it's, like, you know, it's a big download for us. And it seems to be, yeah, you're right, it is, it's, a growing, it's a growing trend. Of, you know, magical groups all over the place are suddenly get, you know, that have a strong occult connection are suddenly getting a huge amount of members. And you are right as well about the, uh, I guess, the kind of the 90s neo-pagan groups are, starting to diminish slightly and these kind of more i guess i don't know focused magical groups are almost taking over it seems i don't know if you agree with that uh well i don't know if taking over is the right word they're certainly on growing on the map <laughs> more than they were say 10 or 15 years ago but i mean what is i mean ken what's your what's your experience been with um this this concept we're talking about about the sort of neo-pagan revival that happened in the 1990s which was really just another revival of what had happened in the 1960s and 70s yeah i mean is it because we don't we see it tapering off here in the states but the population density and the education level is sort of different where you're at i mean is there still are there still covens and oh yeah, and yeah. Groves yeah. in most towns there, or yeah, actually, um, I mean, like, I guess the uh, the hotbed of all this stuff, Brighton is, uh, it's the kind of alternative town, the Santa Cruz, if you will, of uh, of um, of England. So I don't know, we we get a lot of it here, and there's like you know, you still have all the new agey shops, and uh, you still you know, it's still quite prevalent, but it's not what it was like you say in the '90s, where it was this kind of reignition of, it, of the whole scene, as it were, from the '60s. And what we're seeing here, especially, is the uh, you know the kind of destigmatization, I'd say, of uh, of the occult as a term, and you know, and of magic especially. Magic seems to be becoming you know the kind of practice of magic seems to be far more out out in the open. And I have no idea why it is, and it's it's kind of really strange. I don't know. Austin, do you think technology has had what what, what is how has technology played into this? Well, I think it's. Um... I think the the occult revival of the '90s is interesting because it's kind of our post Cold War um, revival, mm -hmm. um, and it's another kind of um, attempt to kind of grasp at meaning that's been um, momentarily wrenched away. 
and uh, but it's still seeking it in very similar terms to what we've been looking for before. So I think the occult revival of the 90s was largely religious. Um, people kind of, uh, you know, you're talking about the you know Generation Xers kind of coming into um, identities um, in the 80s and 90s that may have had a spiritual element that was necessarily like shunning traditional values, but was still looking for something to fill the same role. And so the occult revival was really more of a rediscovery of a different religious orientation. And the magic, the uh, Western esoteric tradition was kind of smuggled along, as it were, accidentally. Um, but today, I mean, we've what's strange is we've got children um, turning into young adults and defining themselves who were raised on Harry Potter <laughs> and who have access to and, and have, you know, since the day they were born, there's, you know, or they probably had an email address since elementary school. Um, and, you know, there's always been this access to information um, where if they were interested in these things, they could just Google it up and all of a sudden it's much more approachable and much easier to become more informed about these things, which I think takes away a little bit of that, uh, the mystique of discovery that mm. was so potent for people who saw, you know, like, ooh, the craft, that's what I want to be when I grow up. You know, maybe I'll go sift through some used bookstores and find an old copy of, you know, some Golden Dawn text and, you know, get my, my brain turned on that way. Now, um, it's almost a cliche. You know, these kids are, are so aware of at least the the possibility of the existence of such information that it's almost passe. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious to see what it'll turn into from there, that um, increased access to the information and kind of this saturation of it from an early age. Yeah, I guess the groups that, um, especially like, I guess your, your Golden Dawn, your OTAs, all this sort of thing, they didn't really have a presence before other than an address in the back of a book. So maybe like it was, yeah, like you say, far more mysterious. <laughs> and maybe that was the appeal in some ways, you know, and that's changed because of the internet and because of this availability of information. I've also noticed just generally within all culture that the internet seems to generally just destigmatize everything. Now, I don't know whether that's uh, not everything, but, you know, a lot of things that used to be stigmatized. And I wonder if that's a good thing or a bad thing in some ways. I don't know. Well, let me ask you this. Do you think, why is it, if that case, if the internet is such this powerful tool and it destigmatizes even the fluffiest, uh, and then a great term, the fluffiest of ideas, <laughs> um, um, you know, even with things that aren't as fluffy, like let's take Wicca as example, right? Why isn't Wicca this huge, giant, ubiquitous religion in the West if the internet is so powerful you but, know what i'm saying why well you could argue why, then that the, i haven't we seen excuse me why haven't we seen it explode you know you could argue that um the internet's uh the cause of that as well i mean <laughs> it could be the you know wicca may not be what people are looking for in some ways and the internet kind of gives them a far more in-depth look at what they're looking at early on if that makes sense that gives them a, a window into that uh you know the process and the culture of a lot in a much different you know in a different way than it would have been presented to them before when they'd have to join these groups and discover this themselves now they've got access to information about what happens the way it happens and the, you know what they practice i guess so it could have the reverse effect as well as the <laughs> the other effect if that makes sense the yeah, yeah yeah 
kind of allowing people to kind of sift out into a wider range of beliefs and practices, but kind of creating this impression that people are less interested in those things that they may have accidentally been funneled through before as the means of transmission. I think that's a really good point. Okay, so any more points on that? I guess just that we're not trying to lay down a diss. No, and yeah, on, that's true. On, yeah, on neo-pagans, I mean, this, the, the student group that we used to work for here at UGA was the UGA Pagan Students Association. We self-identified before we joined the group. We're just wondering why people aren't self-identifying anymore. Hmm. That's interesting. Maybe something for for research there. Well, anyway, I guess I'll take up the next story. Um, the my favorite, I guess, or you know, the thing that struck me most last year was the the kind of uh, I guess coming out of the group anonymous. Um, it's a really odd and strange story. So I'll just I'll cut to the quick a bit more with with the with the story. Uh, a, a video from the Church of Scientology was leaked. Um, it was a kind of inside video rather than one that was meant to be shown to the public of Tom Cruise uh, uh, being interviewed about Scientology and it was meant to be seen by Scientologists. So it was an incredibly weird video. And, you know, certain groups online, um, groups like 4chan and these kind of image boards that kind of act like the kind of Mos Eisley from Tatooine of, of the internet, you know, <laughs> they often, they like that reference, you know, never has there been such a wretched hive of scum and villainy. Um, but they got hold of the video um, and, you know, popularized it, reposted it. And Scientology then uh, basically had legally attacked uh, places like YouTube and got them to take down the video. And this kind of annoyed Anonymous <laughs> to a point where that they saw it as a suppression of freedom of speech and information, which is fair enough. And so um, this kind of tug of war began to happen between... Uh, uh, between Anonymous and Scientology to a point where Anonymous began to attack their websites, which is they're kind of the way they normally operate. For some reason or another, they, there's a billion different reasons why this happened, but they decided rather than to do this, to actually take to the streets. And it was the most, uh, it was, in my opinion, the real birth of bottom-up kind of activism from, you know, grassroots group from the internet. And uh, it was really interesting. I mean, they're still protesting now, but obviously there's infighting and stuff. It's just incredibly weird kind of a concept to me. I don't know. Do you guys do? You, do you, is this the future of activism? Do you think? I don't know. Did they exist before the Scientology hacking began? Yeah, they did. Um, and what's interesting was they generally used to target things. Um, they're 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 uh, kind of uh, I guess catchall phrases. They do it for the lulls. They say, um, and they used to just pick on things that annoyed them more than, more than uh you know there wasn't necessarily particularly a reason for example uh in uh, july i think it was 2006 they attacked uh this uh, kids tv uh, kids tv kids uh computer game online called habbo hotel and just flooded it and that made it impossible for all the users to uh to you know move around in the game and blah 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 and they just thought it was funny so they did it you know over and over again and then second life the big famous uh kind of social game i guess online which is huge and you know all over the place uh they attacked that and made it you know dropped huge penises all over the place and hacked the game and just made it impossible for people to exist and then th with this it seemed to create this strange moral backswing almost where the group suddenly had a kind of legitimate almost reason to go out into the streets and protest about something and it was this huge thing i mean thousands and thousands of people worldwide on the same day it's just unheard of before really i mean unheard of in the terms of its grassroots internet kind of identity it's, it's kind of strange I'm, i really i'm starting to believe that that is the future of activism now and you know if these groups can mobilize and i don't know maybe i'm wrong but 
Now, what's so stirring about the the anonymous uh, group? I'm so glad you brought up that story because it's I've actually been thinking about it myself. Um, uh, was yeah, you're right. Uh, this um, almost um, irredeemable um, cult um, galvanized um, the uh, the internet itself, seemingly, mm-hmm. um, and the internet in its in its bizarre way seemed to actually take corporeal form at these uh, um, these protests, um, and it turns into this like Hieronymus Bosch like scene of you know this um, obviously well to do Scientology temple or church or whatever um, suddenly being swarmed by people wearing V for Vendetta masks and holding up. Um, icons and eidolons of their favorite internet meme, and uh, there's Long Cat over there, and um, somebody's gonna Rick roll the Scientologists in a second, and it's it's really very interesting because you know we've talked about internet memes um, at, as a very um, I guess an interesting microcosm of how organisms change and evolve over time, um, and by extension how human thoughts kind of change and evolve over time like organisms. And it's interesting to have an in-between point like the internet where you can actually watch a thought in a visual representation change and evolve. Mm. But then to see it incarnate into a human body who kind of becomes takes on that the spirit of that meme and kind of shamanistically invokes its power to create epic win. Um, <laughs> it's, it's stirring and interesting. And, and I think um, from even occult angles, it's something to look at as a really um, a, a bizarre way of innervating and activating these otherwise, you know, relatively purposeless but amusing images and then directing them towards a sole purpose. It's like the Abrimelin operation in Lolcat. It's bizarre. <laughs> Raymond, have you, uh, I mean, going to the, I guess, the activist point of view, do you, can you see this being the future of, uh, of, of activism, like being you know, grown online and then brought out into the real world? Or uh, to, a, to an extent, um, it, but it does in some ways make activist groups more vulnerable to um, interference from the from the powers that be, because it, you kind of look like an Al-Qaeda cell if you're not careful. <laughs> so, <laughs> at least with that sort of, um, you know, at least with that sort of uh, structure, you know what I'm saying, where it's just whoever's going to do this is going to do this. There's no centralized governing body. But that means that anybody can do any horrible thing they want in the name of Anonymous, it would seem. Yeah, I, I mean, mean you got to be careful, right? You know, if was... you don't have a public face, then it's hard to defend yourself in the public sphere. Yeah. I mean, I'm actually doing my PhD research on anonymous. And, uh, the one thing that struck me actually, when I was going to, when I went to the protest and I kind of, in London, they tend to go to two different points. Uh, one is a huge Scientology building and then a smaller Scientology building. And in between, you've got like several hundred people in masks going through the underground system of London. I mean, you, you can imagine how <laughs> that could be abused and, you know, that's, it's amazing the police actually allow it in some ways and don't make them walk overground. You know, you've got masked people, hundreds of them, <laughs> in an underground system that's already been attacked once, allegedly, by terrorists. And it's incredible that they allow it to happen. But, you know. Well, you can't outlaw that. I mean, it's, I think it's, against the, it's at least against the law here in, in Georgia to commit a crime while wearing a mask. But you can walk around with them. I remember the ninja incident, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you, it's, it's perfectly legal for somebody to walk around in a mask they can't outlaw halloween and mardi gras 
right? No, I've so, got a feeling though that Atlanta. I think it was the Atlanta protests actually. They weren't allowed to wear masks. No, they weren't allowed to um, <laughs> get uh, drivers by to honk their horns. Apparently, that was uh, disturbing the peace and causing a commotion of some sort. And it was a uh, uh, strange. I don't know. It seems different states in America have different laws. There are actually two states in America where I don't think they're actually allowed to wear masks. They're allowed to conceal their identity but not wear masks. It's kind of strange. Interesting. <laughs> But yeah, um, so I mean, that's something I, I'm going to do a show on Anonymous. I'm going to try and oh, I've got some interviews already, um, but I want to kind of make sure that you know the people I'm talking to are okay <laughs> with me using the interviews because I've actually got. Are you going to scramble up the voices? Um, there's no need with some of the interviews, but uh, yeah, there will be I mean, where I actually talk to participating members of Anonymous, as it were. But I've actually got interviews where I spoke to. Um, founding members of certain websites that are involved with mobilizing anonymous but yeah i mean that was perhaps i think that was my uh the thing that struck me most about 2008 was the the kind of beginning of this new movement online and like austin was saying this kind of uh you know incarnation of it in the streets you know it's a, it's a strange uh thing to behold especially you know when you go out in the street and see hundreds of people in, in viva vendetta masks that alone is kind of a bizarre sight but yeah, so I guess uh, over to you now, Raymond. Oh, well, for me, the I guess most interesting part of 2008, and it wasn't, at points it was hard to predict, but as the year progressed, you could see it more and more. You just didn't want to admit that it was about to happen, was the Obama election, mm. which I think people well, you know, around the world were pretty happy about, from what I heard. Uh, and certainly we were happy here, though most of my fellow Georgians probably weren't. Ha-ha. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I mean, um, just the fact that we could ever see that during our generation in this country is um, amazing from my perspective as a Southerner, and it's uh, elating as well, because... Uh, the attitude of people around here was just that um, it could never happen. Mm. It w- the, the powers that be would never allow a black man to become president. And I thought, and I'm just, I'm really happy with the way things have turned out. And the, and the fact that we are sort of marching on, it would seem, you know, the, the, the world is sort of turning. You know, I mean, we're, we're still tyrants in many ways, don't get me wrong <laughs> here. But... Uh, that was a, a sign, a good sign for me. And, and also, it was, I think it's a sign that the power of uh, evangelical Christian beliefs uh, may be waning. Which mm. I hope I'm not offending anyone in the audience here, though somehow I doubt it with your audience. <laughs> um, but, you know, I mean, that was a sort of Orwellian-style brain fuck that I had put on myself when I was a young man and a, <laughs> a child. And to see their power grow over the past eight to ten years as much as it did after I had left it behind scared me. Because mm. those people will just take and take and take until they control everything in every aspect of your life if you, if you let them. Mm-hmm. They'll treat you just like they treat their children, mm. by and large. Um, and, and, I'm not, and I'm not saying anything about my own parents when I say this, because <laughs> they aren't like that. But I've known many people who are. So anyway, that was a very personal statement about the election, but um, that's that's how it had a deep emotional meaning for a lot of people in a lot of different ways, and that's just one example. And I think um, the fact that people celebrated the way they did, the fact that people are as excited as they are, the fact that the 
mainstream news outlets cannot let the story go that it was so popular that even now two or three months later every day it's Obama and the election and Obama doing this and doing that is pretty amazing mm. you know what I'm saying um, so I mean we'll see what we'll see what happens he's sort of people are like setting him up pretty hard to I mean either succeed or fail at this point um, you know, that I think everybody sort of looks at him like FDR when he first came into office or expecting a lot, which means, of course, that whether or not he does a lot, like say he he fails in many ways in the upcoming hundred days, we'll say. The problem is that some people will be so invested in him already that they won't be able to admit it. Mm. Um, but I don't think that's going to happen personally. I mean, I think I think that things are going to get a little bit better for poor people here in the United States because of this and because of the Republicans being so rebuked in the House and the Senate. And I'm not saying all rah-rah for the Democrats on this. I'm just saying I don't want the Republicans in. Yeah. You know, I'll be completely honest about it, and I don't care if it makes me seem biased. I'm not a, I'm not a journalist. Am <laughs> I? Am I, Austin? What are you doing? You're a pundit. I'm a pundit, thank you. <laughs> like a demagogue. <laughs> I think uh, one of the interesting, I mean, from an international perspective, the Obama election, and actually we were talking to Douglas Rushkoff about this in the last episode, was it paints America in a different light internationally as well to an elect a black president. And it, it kind of shows this kind of progressive um, side to American politics that we haven't seen for a while, I think, internationally. You know, we've had Bush <laughs> a lot. And, uh, you know, it's just good to see that kind of America taking the lead again in many ways and kind of allowing this kind of progressive thing to happen you know on such a big scale as well well i think we allowed 9-11 to turn us into monsters in many ways you know we had some horrible act reaped upon us and then we turned around and just did the same thing to everybody else it was sort of ridiculous you mm. know yeah no it was good i mean uh it's uh it's gonna be interesting to see i mean it's amazing to see actually some of the effects that him just being elected had um for example like all the uh, <clears throat> economists, I mean, I listened to some podcasts, economy, economist podcasts, I should say, and they correctly predicted that the economy in America would inc uh, would actually, you know, boost quite heavily if Obama became, it was elected as president. And it actually did happen briefly. And it's this weird thing. That not only does it show the kind of the power of uh, a leader, a good leader, or, you know, a, a leader that someone's trying to, you know, you know what I mean? <laughs> uh, but it also shows the kind of... Uh, the weird, flexible, and unreal nature of the economy as well, which I thought was kind of uh, a strange, uh, strange... Well, we're all just gawking at the gas prices over here. We can't believe it. I mean, it's, uh, I think, one fifty a gallon right now. I mean, I know this is going to, you know, people will be listening to this two or three years from now and probably laughing, <laughs> but it's right now, it is, the gas is down to a dollar fifty a gallon, which, I mean, I think I was like 20, 19 or 20 the last time. Mm. You know, it was like before long before 9-11 yeah it's, it's like 85p here now which is incredible you know uh it's under a pound which is amazing because it really rocked it up but yeah it's amazing these kind of uh it's just interesting to watch the the way these kind of uh events kind of manipulate other you know things like the economy and it's just an interesting thing to watch and it's a i mean this the, what do you think about the actual election itself the the run-up to the election the the campaigns i mean they're unlike anything i've seen before as well Agreed. I was I was dead sure that the whole election was going to come down to the war and that it was going to be this big divisive debate here in the States about whether the war was right or wrong or how it was supposed to be. And um, John McCain, that was always his message, right? Mm -hmm. 
was about the war. That was his central issue, his foreign policy. And Obama, from the very beginning, he built his grassroots support on anti-war protesters. Those were his first supporters back in 06 and 07 that were helping to get his campaign off the ground. That was his big issue. And it was so funny that when it actually came down to the debates and their presentation in front of the American people, it was the economy the whole time. It was the economy, the whole debate. And there was very little talk of Iraq or or any foreign policy, really. Yeah. You know, other, than the, other than them both making sure that they uh, checked off all of our current enemies on the list and made sure they confirmed that they were enemies to them as well. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, I, he likes the Iranians. He likes the Venezuelans. He's out. You got to make sure if you're in these debates that you you badmouth all of our enemies. The axis of evil. That's right. Yeah, the other thing I thought was interesting was the way Obama campaigned. Like again, it was unlike any other campaign in that respect. He really utilized the internet in a way that I've never seen anyone in any political party do. I mean, he used things like Twitter, you know, the social networking thing, to such great effect. It was incredible. It's again, we've we spoke about all this with Rushkoff last month, and it was it's just amazing. I've never seen a a president appeal to people on that level before you know it's, it's strange like the google generation I, I think it's um fascinating because uh I, I think what the republicans ironically didn't notice until too late in the game was that after eight years of darkness and doom the whole of the american people were looking for a messiah hmm. to come along and raise them up out of hell um, and they, they realized too late that that's what everybody would vote for. And that's why they, you know, anointed Sarah Palin as quickly as they could and, you know, uh, spilt the, the blood of the lamb over her and washed her uh, <laughs> clothes pearly white and then, you know, thrust her out um, to, you know, die upon the altar. Um, but I think uh, I think Obama somewhere deep down understood that that is what he represents to a lot of people who have kind of that religious orientation that we were talking about that evangelical kind of um, attitude, um, but who perhaps have become a little dis, uh, disenchanted with um, the Republican Party. Um, and you see many poorer um, people kind of rediscovering certain liberal attitudes. Um, and certainly the pressure of the economy helped kind of innervate that a little bit. We mm. see this especially, I think, in North Carolina and Virginia. Mm -hmm. And then the results in those two states, because those were, I would have never thought they would have gone Democrat. Yeah, and what's scaring me now is seeing kind of the repercussions of being elected Messiah of the United States, is you've got all these commercials on for these commemorative coins and plates and, and buy the idols of our new leader, please worship <laughs> upon them. And it's really, you're right, it's setting him up for this role that, I mean, he's, he's, moving well as a politician i just don't know if he's going to be able to live up to some of the almost supernatural powers that people seem to be hoping he's going to display as soon as he comes into office and attains his full glory it's fdr all over again i'm telling you remember his picture would have been on everybody's wall back in the 30s mm. so we'll see how it turns out you know i'm i'm i i wish our new president the best is what i'll say Excellent. I'll, I'll i'll only say that messiah figures rarely wind up for the best in the end hmm. but he is a, he is a pretty uh pretty good poker player though he never made any moves during the election season that were really all that controversial which was surprising to me mm -hmm. the fact that he could not be drawn out into uh anything that was going to make him look bad 
That's true. He wasn't gonna make he wasn't gonna make himself look bad, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good. Um, so, but if he continues to act that way as president, then he'll be he won't be messiah-like at all. He'll just be very centrist. Mm-hmm. He'll be sort of like Bill Clinton too. <laughs> I'd be okay with. That. You'd be okay with that? Okay, yeah, I'd be okay with that. So, <laughs> m- minus the impeachment. So the next story we have is uh, the exclusive you alluded to earlier, and it, it's a, an event that took place close to your home, I believe. That's right, and we are willing to answer questions about it. Okay, so... <laughs> <laughs> we're not giving you anything you don't ask for, because we're okay. making a documentary about this. Okay, 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 okay. Right. Quote-unquote documentary. <laughs> so... Okay, I guess the best thing to start off with is uh, for the listeners that we have that haven't listened to your episode about it, what are the Georgia Guidestones? Well, the Georgia Guidestones are a granite monument in Elberton, Georgia. Elberton is a a small town in eastern Georgia, about 100 miles from Atlanta, and it's um, the, they call it the granite capital of the world. Um, There are more granite monuments like tombstones and things like that produced in this town than in any other place in the world. And there, I think, are seven or eight different quarries, granite quarries there in the area as well. <clears throat> anyway, the Georgia Guidestones are a monument that's on top of a hill there in Elberton. And they have been called by many conspiracy theorists the Ten Commandments of the New World Order. I think you call them those, too. <laughs> oh, yeah. We, we, we refer to them as that in our episode title. No. <laughs> uh, yeah, for, for Out There Radio, the episode of Out There Radio we did about this. But... It attracts attention. Okay, Austin, thank you. Yes, yes. Okay. So anyway, uh, <laughs> anyway, this um, this monument is like 16 feet tall. It has eight different faces on it. Each one of them has 10 guidelines for um, how to, I guess, rebuild humanity after some catastrophic event has happened. Okay, so there are things like, you know, maintain the population under a certain level and... Um, have fair and just laws and respect truth and beauty and love. Leave room for nature. Leave room for nature. It says it twice. Anyway, that these ten guidelines are translated into the um, to the eight most used languages, I guess, on Earth. Or back in the 1980s, they were the eight most used languages, and um, they're on this monument, sort of as a testament to maybe be found one day after the apocalypse or whatever. Mm. Yeah, it, I mean, it's it's worth noting that they were unveiled in 1980 at the spring equinox, and uh, that kind of, uh, or at least according to the mysterious figure who founded them, um, they had been in the works for quite a while before then. So they're they're definitely a relic of a different age. Hmm. And uh, isn't there some kind of uh, astrological significance to their placing? I believe. Uh, well. There are certain holes cut into them where you can, I think, see the sunrise through the hole. On certain days of the year, like the equinox or the solstice. Yeah, there's a shaft um, at the very center, and every day at noon around the year, a, a shaft of sunlight will kind of uh, come down at exactly noon. Very neat. I think there's another shaft also will allow you to see the North Star if you look through it, no matter what day of the year it is or what time of night it is. So it's um, it's an interesting monument, and it, obviously there are some new age sort of new agey overtones to it. Um, it was built, uh, or was commissioned by this fellow, R.C. Christian, who was this a mysterious man that was his pseudonym, or mm. pseudonym, 
as we sometimes say. Um, <laughs> anyway, if you look at pictures of the monument, you'll know why I said the word pseudonym. But um, anyway, uh, Mr. Christian rolls into town sometime in 1980 to this large monument company and talks to the owner of the company about how he wants to build this great monument. And the guy thinks he's crazy at first because he won't give him his real name. Yeah, and he's talking about creating a monument of incredible complexity. I mean, in terms of the size of the stones and the amount of stone it would take and the arrangement of them and moving the stones from place to place. It was an, an astronomical um, price that it would have cost. Mm. Yeah, not, on, not only that, but um, they had never even quarried slabs of granite that were that large from any of the quarries in Elberton or really probably hardly anywhere else in the world because who, who else, where, where, where do you see huge slabs of giant granite monuments? You don't usually see something like that. So um, anyway, he, he also had to approach a fellow at, a, at the local bank to get them to sort of bankroll the project so the local company would be willing to build it. And so apparently the people at the bank knew who R.C. Christian really was, but they're the only ones. Only one man. Mm, only right. one man knows. And uh, we're searching for him for our documentary. I don't know if we'll find him, but we, we know who we're looking for. Mm. Anyway, anyway, so this monument is very interesting. I mean, it's an interesting sort of new agey kind of tourist attraction. But what's most interesting about it is the negative... Um, the, the negative opinions that so many people have had of this monument over the years, if you read the 10 guidelines on the guidestones, they don't, they seem fairly innocuous. They seem like they were written by a very like Ted Turner style, 1970s new age, eco-friendly kind of fellow, you know, mm. who by the way claims to be a Christian in all of the writings and sources we have that say anything about him. Yeah, patri representing a group of patriotic Americans who believe in the teachings of Jesus Christ. Yeah, that's what that. So it's it's all pretty innocuous, and it doesn't seem to have too much of a religious connotation at all. But people have taken it to have this satanic, pagan, uh, occult overtone for many years, which is of course what made it interesting to us that people would find that. But anyway, the reason we've started researching this story. Again, I mean, we'd already done a very brief documentary about it without their radio, episode eight, um, is because the guidestones were recently vandalized by uh, anti New World Order activists. Self described anonymous patriot. Mm. Well, I, we don't see, now there, is, there, there was a video that came out, right, Austin, from an anonymous patriot, but it's not necessarily the same people who. Mm. who defaced the monument itself despite appearances right yeah. exactly so three three different stories here shortly after the obama election of course um someone goes out and throws epoxy up on the faces of the monument mm -hmm. and then a few weeks later someone comes out and spray paints it and uh with all this like with basically with quotes directly from the alex jones film Endgame, mm -hmm. um all that uh, plus an obama is a muslim thrown in there for good measure um, and then a few weeks later, a video from an anonymous patriot appeared on YouTube, which you can still watch. In fact, we'll, now. we'll play the clip of that, um, of the message <laughs> read by the. Yeah, anonymous. yeah, it's very interesting. If you watch the video, the fellow's in a mask, and as you're about to hear, his voice is all garbled. So, you want to play that for us, Ken? Yep, let's play that now. This is a message to the global elite, the New World Order, and my fellow Americans. It has begun. The days of blissful ignorance without a suffering of the consequences are over. Truth and wisdom are no longer 
and weapons wielded by the elite few against the impoverished many. They have now been handed down to us, given to us, as a reward for a never-ending desire to improve and progress as human beings, to do away with the mistakes and wrongdoings of before, and to not let the corruption and tyranny of yesterday be the way of now and tomorrow. It is for this reason that now more than ever it is time to act. We can no longer sit by and let the malevolence of oppression work behind closed doors. We'll send on you with the ferocity of patriots that have fought before us. You will not sleep, you will not smile, and we will show you no quarter. Death to the New World Order. Yes, girth to the new world order. <laughs> I know, right? So very interesting stuff, right? Like we knew then that we had a story. So, and we wanted to give you guys just a little sneak peek of it tonight, and that's why we told you a little bit about the history of the Guidestones and mm. have teased you with this audio clip. So, Ken, that's our basic story. We have a lot of stuff that's coming up in an upcoming documentary. We don't know if it's going to be audio or video yet, but we're working on the research, and we've already collected a bunch of materials. We've got materials from the elusive R.C. Christian that have never been presented in documentaries before. We've got um, all sorts of interesting stories about these patriot types who apparently hate the Georgia Guidestones so much and some colorful interviews from people in the town mm. as well. So, And Austin is my research partner mm -hmm. on this project. I mean, th this whole process has been a very interesting collaboration because once we, once we knew that there was a story we had to kind of gumshoe about... Um, uh, Raymond dressed up uh, real nice. Um, he shaved and uh, uh, changed out of his sweatpants, uh, <laughs> which is a rare occasion. Uh, <laughs> I, I actually left the house for yeah, this. Yeah, left the house. Jesus. Um, yeah, uh, quite literally, he actually dressed up looking like a, a young preacher, um, I guess, to put the locals at ease. Um, and I had to ransack my wardrobe trying to find something that wouldn't make me look like too much of a warlock. Um, <laughs> so... <laughs> So young preacher and his uh, well-dressed warlock um, roll into town, and we, you know, kind of go around doing our research. Um, and uh, as as we go through, and hopefully this will, you know, we'll be able to fill fill you in with all the details, the juicy, juicy details later. But we started to kind of realize that the story was actually influencing us as well, and our reaction to the stones. Where we we went out that um, that early afternoon once we got there and kind of visited the stones, looked at their condition, um, and had one reaction then. And then after multiple hours of you know, tracking people down and discovering these resources and growing in knowledge and appreciation of what, um, what the monuments themselves were intended to be and the complexity of how they're received by people favorable or unfavorable to them. And the extent of the damage to mm. them. Mm. Yeah, our reaction fundamentally changed. And we stood out there kind of right before the sun was setting and looked at these monuments and understood the ambiguity of their meaning, um, even to, you know, the people who are well informed about, you know, what they were, quote unquote, supposed to mean. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it became very clear to us, you know, how sticky a subject meaning can be when it's, you know, applied to something as mysterious as these monuments. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, it surprises me that They've only really kind of, I mean, I guess they've probably been spoken about before by conspiracy theorists, but it's only really recently that they've kind of uh, remade an appearance, as it were. <laughs> uh, I mean, like Alex Jones, as you, you alluded to earlier, he um, he he featured, uh, is it Endgame? 
that he's featured. Yeah, that's him. correct. Yeah, I'll, I can give you a very brief sort of family tree of conspiracy theorists who covered this mm. over the past four or five years. When we made our doc, our original episode of Out There Radio about the Guidestones, which also included some interviews from the from Elberton, um, it was in the wake of a fellow named uh, John Connor, right? Have you heard of this guy, Ken? John Connor? He's in Terminator 2, um, isn't he? Yeah, he's, yes, he's, he was in Terminator 2, the very one, exactly. No, uh, <laughs> this, was a, this was sort of anti-New World Order activist who took on the, the pseudonym <laughs> John Connor and um, uh, railed about how the Guidestones should be pulled down and yanked down. And it got some uh, press traction immediately and back in 2004 and 2005 from the people in Elberton and from others on the Internet. And then over the, over two, the two or three years since then, the story got picked up first by, um, he, he was on Coast to Coast AM. His name, I think now is like Mac White, I think is his name. His, yeah, he doesn't go by John Connor anymore. I think probably he got so many emails of people telling him how ridiculous he was <laughs> that he quit doing it. But anyway, he, he, I've, you can go on YouTube, and if you type in George Guidestones, I think one of the results will be this guy's Mac White, John Connor's interview on Coast to Coast AM. Uh, he's written a book called The Resistance Manifesto. Anyway, I hate to plug it. I'm not really trying to here. <laughs> but um, anyway, in which he, and, and part of his shtick is that he disses the Guidestones really bad and thinks that they should be torn down and that they are New World Order central and that the fact that it says maintain the population under 500 million means that the New World Order plans on killing the population down to 500 million, which is a giant huge leap i would say we'll, we'll discuss that more in the documentary when it comes out but um then alex jones picked up uh john connor's stuff and had him on his show i think after he was on coast to coast am or before maybe even hmm. and it ends up in alex jones's new film endgame which i mean that's the theme of the movie that there is this new world order that's um gonna in, you know, have a global police state and they're going to kill back the whole population because they're all Malthusian madmen or whatever. Anyway, the Guidestones are at the very beginning and at the very end of this film pictured and he talks about them for maybe a sentence or two, but no explanation at all about their background, where they came from, anything about them. He just uses them as a tool to make his point. Mm -hmm. And after this two-hour grueling uh carnival of conspiracy darkness that is that documentary um in game you uh, like raymond and i sat down and, and gave it a peek you know because we wanted to wanted to get a little insight into this thing that featured the guidestones um you know kind of as as bookends and we <laughs> i was in the most terrible bleak mood of all time after we got finished with this thing it mm. just plunges you into this dark darkened view of the world um which i think conspiracy types are kind of prone to uh, sliding into every once in a while. But it presents absolutely every possible uh, conspiracy in kind of this um, gestalt form and, you know, assures you that, yes, there is an elite that's going to poison us all and turn the world into a prison planet. And then look at the Guidestones. <laughs> um, it doesn't explain them, but just allows you to transfer all of that mm. emotion to these things and you can really understand why people might look at them in a in a very in a literally actually a, a different light um, after going through that clipothic sludge fest of a documentary mm. I mean I, I can pretty much say with confidence that I mean uh, I was just looking through the comments on the YouTube video actually for the the guy that 
this, this guy that's uh, anonymous. <laughs> um, the anonymous patriot. Yes. Yeah, let's, we're, let's, we're, let's not connect him to the anonymous we were talking about earlier yeah, in this I was, episode. I was those guys are point, way yeah. cooler. Well, actually, the, the anonymous, if you look on the, some of the comments, uh, actually go in there and, and kind of uh, you know, t- have some fun with him, basically. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's one way of looking at it. But yeah, they uh, certainly... What one thing I do wonder is that maybe that video in some way was enabled by the anonymous protests in some ways. You know that this idea that you, this physical thing can happen from the internet. I don't know. Do you reckon there's any leverage in that? Well, statement? I mean, well, I mean, it seems obvious that at least the spray painting that happened. Somebody probably watched this internet film, which is the way people take it in mostly. They don't buy it as a DVD. They watch it on video Google. Hmm. Probably somebody probably went right out straight after watching that. Yeah. Or watching it. Well, we're watching it for the fifth time, basically. With a couple on. beers in their system and some PCP in their veins. Woo! <laughs> so, well, we don't know about the PCP, but... Just a theory. Just a theory. Ah. Anyway, anyway. No, that's, that's, that's really just us talking out our asses, but... Wild conjecture. But, I mean, I think you're right. Like, it's, there's a similarity. I mean, we see the kind of, that kind of uh, internet activism in things like Earth First... Um, you know, where there's this decentralized mobilizing factor of, well, if you want to identify with this group, all you have to do is read the pamphlet and go do something. Mm. And we're not going to say, you know, oh, well, that wasn't official Earth First kind of stuff. So, you know, you can have people being very benign and law abiding aligned with Earth First. And then you can have the most atrocious acts of uh, terrorism um, being committed in the name of the exact same group. Um, thankfully, anonymous, you know, has a sense of humor for the most part, um, which is severely lacking in many of these more, um, I'd call them fearful um, and anxious uh, segments of the uh, conspiracy uh, mindset. And we wonder if the um, the vandals and the anonymous patriot, quote unquote, on the video might represent some of that as well. Mm-hmm. So I think there's an interesting story here about sort of the stepchildren of the 1990s patriot movement that we've become so familiar with from say john ronson's documentary yeah definitely yeah um but we are really excited about this because usually i mean well you know us if you've listened to me to me especially for any amount of time you know i just regurgitate sources that you could watch yourself but this haha i live here (laughs) i was actually able to get real research so i'm proud yeah. Even with what we've got so far. So stay tuned for that. What do you think, Austin? Hopefully by, certainly by February sometime, we'll have something ready. I, I, I dearly hope so. Because, yeah, I mean, this is in our own backyard. And if nothing else, we we need to, you know, step up and combat a little bit of uh, at least ignorance, if not fear and anxiety in our own area. Mm. Exactly. And tell a bunch of very interesting stories. There's one other story that I'm not going to tell tonight, but it involves... A fellow named Old Dutchy, and if you want to find out about Old Dutchy and his his relation to the Georgia Guidestones, you'll have to you'll have to wait for our documentary. And we'll tease, and we'll keep you posted. And when this documentary comes out and everything, of course. Actually, I was going to ask one more question actually about it really quickly. Um, <clears throat> actually, to Austin, I mean, we've we've spoken about the kind of conspiratorial angle, you know, the conspiracy theorists, their views, and the way they've covered it. Uh, how does the Invisible College look at the uh, the Georgia Guidestones? Oh, that's um, there's always been kind of a, um, a backlash, as we were discussing um, about these monuments, them being almost instantly associated by church groups in the area with 
um, pagan, occult, or satanic practices. Um, and in fact, at their unveiling, auspiciously enough, at the spring equinox of 1980, um, there was actually a, um, a Wiccan group, I believe it was, in attendance um, that kind of took it upon themselves, as far as, as, far as we know, uh, to perform an inauguration ceremony um, in Wiccan style. So at the very moment that they were unveiled, a group had identified with it, and another group had identified it as evil. Mm, um, one kind of reading meaning into it um, and identifying with that, and the other seeing it as a threat. Um, and I think the way that's evolved over time is very interesting. Go ahead, Rick. Yeah, and you can actually find an interview with one of the people that did that ritual on our original episode of About the Guidestones on Out There Radio. So check that out. Plug, plug, plug. Plug, plug, um, plug. But, <laughs> uh, but yeah, um, so when you, when, once you actually try to you know, plunge deeper into um, what the original message is before you, I, I guess, identify with the inanimate object itself as representing you or representing what you fear, um, you start to you know, see some pretty clear things like, I mean, the man's pseudonym, of course, R.C. Mm. Christian sparked um, thoughts of, well, is this person, you know, he claims to represent a small anonymous group of uh, patriots that believe in the teachings of Jesus Christ. Is he himself a Rosicrucian, R.C. Christian, Christian Rosenkreuz, the connection is obvious to make. Um, and as you kind of uh, read some of the background documents, you start to feel like, yes, perhaps there is something to that. You know, there are these occult undertones, um, though they're relatively benign, they're there, and I think they capture the imagination for good or evil. Um, so if you identify with those occult themes that kind of um, permeate the Western esoteric tradition, you can see the way that they kind of found blossom on these um, on these guidestones and you can see ah that's that's something similar to something I've seen before um, and if you've been raised in an environment where the things that you are taught are compromising to your values um, and if your values are religiously oriented and you've been taught that the unknown or the occult or the spiritual that is not strictly transmitted from your preacher um, is the work of the devil, then it's obvious that if you saw those undercurrents, you know, subtle though they may be in this monument, that you would associate it with those forces of darkness. Um, so, yeah, this, this, the monument is an incredible uh, locus of meaning. Mm. Um, that is, it's like a prism that people can look into and see themselves and see the way they view the world kind of through its reflections. Yeah, um, yeah, like I said, I'm, we'll keep you pasted on that. And I'll, actually, I'll stick a link up to the episode that Raymond's been relentlessly plugging throughout the episode um, <laughs> <laughs> um, as well. So you can yeah, check Well, out. i got to warn you, it is the worst audio quality of any of the 50 episodes about their radio. There's one particular interview in there that I think we did on about a $15 little digital recorder from Walmart. It sounds like you recorded <laughs> it. So watch out. It sounds like they recorded it in wax, like pre-tape. Or, or in a <laughs> giant tin can. Have you ever heard those old oh, Alistair oh, Crowley oh. recordings? It kind of sounds the same kind of quality as that. But yeah. Go on. Well, actually, come think of it, Ken, I think my, my final backup of that file is on a tape because I think the recorder at WUOG Studios failed that night and I had to actually tape it oh. so <laughs> an analog episode about their radio an analog episode <laughs> but well, thanks for thanks for pl for helping me plug it and, and sticking it up on your website <laughs> <laughs> oh that's no problem but anyway guys thanks a lot for uh coming on and uh 
you know, uh, waffling along with me for <laughs> for an hour about it. Yeah, I think it's, it, was, it was an in, in conclusion, I should say. It was an interesting year, 2008. And uh, I don't know. I mean, any final thoughts on the year, you guys? Out with the douche year, in with the new year. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. I think I'll leave that one with Austin. Opening the door to the unknown. Listener feedback. Really looking forward to the new episodes, so keep up with your work, guys. Thanks. Interviews. There's so many movies, so many documentaries, even books that come out that have factual information in it that maybe, you know, this is a gradual way of, of kind of educating the public to as to what's going on. Visit Erie Radio at www.erieradio.com. <laughs> MySpace Heroes with me, Danny Tank. Today, District of Evolution, New Paper Crusader, Magnetic Stripper, with Set 5A, Sabutom, with Leningrad Vodka Rush, and The Boy and His Recorder, with Ice Cream Chuck. Why not send them electronic messages of love?
ice cream truck and the ice cream truck must have been so white, but I'm like, oh,